Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. Excited to study with you all tonight. We are back in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'll say this. Uh, last week, I got someone texted me with some really complimentary things to say about the class. And make sure you hear what I said, because I didn't say complimentary things about the teacher. And, and I'll tell you what that means. Specifically, they said, Alan, I really like how you'll ask a question and then stop talking <laughs> and, and make people wait for them, maybe, you know, answer and give their thoughts. There is so much collective wisdom in this group. And so that compliment's really for you from someone that wasn't able to be with us but was watching on the stream. And so if you thought I waited a long time last week for answers, I'm just going to sit down tonight and we'll just, we'll just do that. We have occasionally in the class, I've tried to give a, maybe a quick recap of kind of what we talked about last week or maybe even just what was the last thought we talked about last week before we launch in. We haven't usually done kind of a, a full review, the book up to this point, but we'll, we'll do that a little bit tonight, um, and there's a reason for that, because it's an interesting chapter tonight as we are in Ecclesiastes. So, so far, um, we've, we've had a lot of thoughts shared um, by the preacher. We have talked about, go forth. Um, both the eye and the ear of man are left unsatisfied. We talked, that thought was shared with us. Wisdom, pleasure, wealth, enterprise, legacy, all leave man unfulfilled. And then also, by the way, you also, you still die. No matter how much of these things you have, you still just die at some point. Um, all these things, they are like grasping for the wind, this unattainable, unfulfillable goal that you'd, be, you'd look foolish trying to do that and saying this is just as foolish. Uh, the endless cycle of nature seems to be going nowhere, producing nothing new. We've talked about that up to this point as well. Uh, that the world is filled with the mystery of jarring contradictions, it seems like. And they're beyond man's control. And in many ways, they're beyond our understanding. We understand them to a point we can see them, experience them, and we could tell you what's happening. We could say, this doesn't feel fair. I feel like there's injustice over here. I see the poor being oppressed. That doesn't seem right. But you ask me, why is that happening? Man can struggle to understand or to answer that. Uh, injustice is rampant. We talked about that in a prior class. If you've not been in the class before, you are probably wondering, this seems like a pretty much of a downer of a class in many ways. Uh, is it better? Oh, sorry. And also... It, that it's better for many people if they actually had just never been born at all. Life is so hard for them. Life is so bad. You know, it'd really be better if they just hadn't been born because they would not be experiencing a lot of this laundry list that we've covered up to the point. And so that's been a big part of the first four chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you just picked it up and you were reading it, if not earlier, probably by this point, surely, you would be asking yourself some version of this question, what is going on here on earth? 
what is going on here under the sun or under the heavens, that expression that we've seen several times, because it just seems like it's one thing after another that there's pain and there's sorrow and we try to do things and they slip away from us and we have struggles and it's hard and maybe we shouldn't have even been born. And so we're kind of like, what is going on? And chapter five is an interesting chapter. Chapter five is if you were looking at the original text, and I don't know what it looked like. Here's how I imagine it looked like. I imagine the preacher writing it out you know, on the scroll, then almost the first part of chapter five, almost like in the margins, like an aside, like I'm going to interrupt my thought and we'll get back to it, but there's something important we need to talk about first. And we get kind of an initial response or an initial answer to some of the things we've been talking about, some of that difficulty, especially with this question, like what is going on? Why is life so hard? Why does it seem so unfair? The first four chapters have acknowledged God. It never questions. Maybe we're totally by ourselves. Maybe he, that's never come up in the first four chapters. He has been mentioned and things have been ascribed to him that he's going to give, he's going to ultimately give payment to the unjust. It may not happen here. We don't understand his ways in doing it, but he will do that. And so God is real in these first four chapters, but this feeling of what is going on here. And so to understand chapter five a little bit, it might be helpful for us to consider a totally different book of the Bible for a minute, a different story. And this tonight is starting with a little bit of me talking, so you're going to make it up later. I'm on double time a little bit. Consider John chapter 6, because John chapter 6 represents in a big way what we might be feeling up to this point in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and then where the preacher will take us. John chapter 6 starts with an incredibly well-known story, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And those of us familiar with that story, we know he does not feed the 5,000 out of his abundance or out of his connection with the food bank. or It is a miracle. He takes virtually next to no food, enough for like a meal for, for one person, right? And is able to feed masses of people and have tons of food left over. And the people love this. The people love this long before the crowds would shout for Jesus to be crucified. They almost conspire to take him by force and make him be king. This is that instance. They are so excited about someone that can just give them food when they are hungry that they, this, this pastor tells us he perceives they are getting ready to take him by force. And it says he withdraws. And the scripture is not clear whether he just leaves or whether this is one of those other miraculous moments where crowds tried to grab him to kill him, that he, he slips away. It just says he withdraws from them. Does not allow this to happen. And yeah, so he withdraws. And he's with the disciples. There's another miracle, you may recall, on the water. But the crowds are tenacious. And they wake up and they're like, where is he? Where did he go? Let's go find him. And so they, they figure out a way to get over to him. Wanting more bread. So Jesus had been teaching them and he had fed them. And fed them abundantly. Everyone had plenty to eat. 
We know this because there was so much left over, like people can't eat anymore. He provides that much. But they pursue him wanting more bread, and Jesus tells them, that's why you're here, and that's not good, so he teaches them. So I'm not just going to give you more bread. I'm not going to be the king that just gives you bread all the time. I actually am the bread, he continues to teach in John chapter 6. And he talks more about that, and he starts to use more descriptive language, more hard language about eating him. And they hear that, and the Jews, it says at first, which is interesting because all these people are are Jewish, right? But we know who that means, the Jews, the non-disciples who might be there, they hear that and they grumble. Really that, they are offended by this. This is distasteful. This is a hard saying. This doesn't make any sense. So they grumble and they leave. Uh, If you're familiar with the Gospels, that won't surprise you because this happens often. When Jesus is teaching and those that weren't with him to begin with, oftentimes when he teaches them, they're like, yeah, here he goes again. We're, We're still not with him. It doesn't make sense. He can't be the one because he's saying these, these wild things. But then the pastor tells us the disciples grumble too. There's many disciples here as well. It says many disciples grumble and many of them also use this moment as the moment they depart from Jesus. They had been with him for a while up to this point. But this is, this is the moment that this is too much for them as well because He's saying he's not here to to give us things. He's not here to feed us. In fact, he's teaching this really hard teaching, and the disciples are saying, who can can hear this stuff? Like, this is too much, like what he's saying. And so many disciples leave, and a few remain, still desiring the, and this is my emphasis, the difficult words of life. Because the 12 remain, and Jesus says, you want to go too? And famously, the response, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, at this point, the 12, they don't have perfect understanding of everything Jesus has taught. And the scriptures will make that clear many times, that they they didn't understand this. Even later, the gospel will say they didn't understand the loaves and the fishes when it happened. They don't understand things fully, but... They know Jesus has the words of life, hard as they might be. And so in this moment, they're saying, we're going to not understand everything, but we're going to stick with you. And it's a very small amount of people that choose to do that. And that is really kind of our response in the first few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We have spent some time talking about the world under the sun is hard It's cruel, it's often unfulfilling, it's dangerous, it's unjust at times, there's oppression, there's sadness, there's loss. And so it could be natural as we wonder what is going on here. Well, if this is how it is, then why would I worship God? If this is the world he's put together, and if he's in charge as we're saying in the first few chapters, and it's this confusing, and he's not going to tell us, he's not going to explain his mind to us, he's not going to tell us what's going on, why should I worship him? And in chapter 5, we have kind of the initial response of the preacher stepping out of his essay 
or his kind of research experiment to guide us away from that thinking. This is the first moment in this book where up to this point he's been saying, I saw this. I'm going to talk about these things. Here's how the world is. And then in chapter 5, the language changes and he starts talking about you. You need to do this. You listen to this. We are moving away from educational chapters to some instruction for a few verses. In that, I think the spirit through, the, through Solomon here saying, yes, there's a lot going on here that we don't understand. We're going to keep talking about that more in this book I'm writing. But you need to remember, you don't have to understand. It's not necessary for you to understand to give God worship. So in spite of all, everything in the first four chapters, here's how you are supposed to be conducting yourselves. And he starts to talk about some of the ways we should be conducting ourselves when it comes to a God who is all-powerful and yet is mysterious sometimes and yet has ways that are above ours that we don't understand. The response is not, curse God and die. He's confusing. The response is not, it's not fair, so who cares what he thinks? The response is, in spite of all that, Here's some things you need to make sure you're doing. We'll get back to everything I was talking about, says Solomon. But here's a quick aside before you kind of get lost down the rabbit trail. So with that established, let's talk about some of these things. And you guys ready to take over, I can tell. Explain his prescribed response to a mysterious God in some of these verses. He gives us some directions here. I would love to know. You can tell me, what would this have meant to those in Solomon's day? What would this mean to Christians today, hearing the wisdom of the Holy Spirit when he says things like this, guard your steps. And all these things are specific as well. This is not guard your steps when you're out in the world because there's rough people out there. So this very specific context to these discussions. So this first one, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What are your thoughts? There. Okay, so we have walk prudently might be your translation. What what does that mean? Pretty much being mindful as you're going and do it in an aspect of reverence and respect when you're approaching it. Okay, using reverence and respect when approaching. God, why might, why might that be really important to mention right here in chapter 5? You've committed. You started just talking to yourself. Let's go. <laughs> it's, it's that we can make a, a great error of maybe um, considering ourselves wise and in questioning God and his ways and um, having difficulty um, considering, as he tells them to do in terms of listening, having difficulty considering because of the challenge of understanding these things. Absolutely. Yeah, we got Mitch over here. Yeah, but I, I stole it. Oh, go for it. <laughs> I think the rest of the verse kind of explains this pretty well, too. Uh, you know, we draw near to listen instead of just doing something by habit. Sacrifices of fools, not thinking about what we're doing, not doing it because of the right reasons. 
that's guarding our steps as well. Uh, because, and as it goes on to say, that's, that's an evil thing to do. Yeah, very good. We'll bring that one in as well while we have Mitch. Do you still want to come in here? I'll oh, double microphone. So, uh, you know, guard your steps. You are, uh, you're going to the house of the Lord. You, you don't end up there, you know, like, oh, I have my eyes closed. And, oh, look, I'm here at the house of the Lord. No, you're going there with intention of some sort, right? There's some kind of purpose uh, that causes you, that motivates you, or leads you to go to the house of the Lord. And here today, back then, we can do that for many different reasons. It may be a good intention. It may be a good purpose. It may be our own selfish reasons. It may be, uh, you know, for our own ideas or thoughts or reasons why we are doing this. And, and you know, the writer is saying, be careful, right? <coughs> listen. That's why it's, it's said to listen. You're, you're not going there to do your own thing or to do whatever you want. You're going there for the Lord and for his purpose. And so you have to listen and you have to be careful. Very good. Combining you know, those two thoughts while well, we get Janine in just a second. Yeah. Why are you going to the house of the Lord? Is it to do what you would like to do? Is it, to, is it so you would like to address God, to talk to him about a few things? Or would you like to be listening to what he would have to say? Yeah, Janita. I was thinking of Nadab and Abihu, that they did not have re regard for God's holiness. So when you go to the house of God, you do it his way. Absolutely. When you go, you do it his way because you're listening to what his will is. You're doing his will. Bruce, yeah. I think these verses to me remind me of There we go. These verses remind me that God is not someone to be trifled with. God's character is that he is, yes, merciful. He is kind, he is gracious, he is faithful, but he's also severe to those who uh, approach him with sort of a flippant, whatever may be, attitude in his presence. Uh, he's our creator. He's our master. The things that are mentioned here are things that a fool would do. And so in order to guard our steps, in order to draw near to God, we need to prepare our hearts before we go to the house of God. Prepare uh, our hearts, uh, having studied our lesson for the Bible class, uh, having prepared our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, prepare to sing, and, and leave everything else behind. Because God is a mighty God. He's a holy God, as was mentioned. And he is... Uh, one who is truly, uh, it is dangerous for us to fall into the hands of the living God uh, if we have that attitude. I, I think that's what Solomon is saying here. That's well said. God has so many wonderful characteristics that he reveals to us that we are often tempted to be like, well, this is all he is. And we kind of, well, put you in this box, and this is how you, you're always long-suffering, you always give me gifts, you always do this. But there are other things about God that we would be foolish to ignore. I like that uh, Nadab and Abihu were brought up. I also think of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, when uh, Saul didn't obey God, 
and Samuel rebuked him for it. And it kind of goes along with what's said here. It's, uh, Samuel says, to obey is better than to sacrifice. So God obviously knows what he wants, and it's foolish of us to think that we know what God wants better than what he does. So if we want to understand what God wants of us, we need to listen to him and understand what he's asking of us. Because if we do anything more or anything less than that, then we're disobeying, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, foolish is a, is a great word that you say. When we think we know more than God, or we think that God owes us an explanation. You know, this is very timely placed where we talked about this is so confusing. It seems contradictory. It seems unfair. And this quick introduction is like, remember who you are, though, when you approach God to commune with him, even with all this pressure maybe on you. That goes right along with what I was thinking about. Consider who, who you are you know, when we come to, to the house to worship. But it made me think of Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector as they prayed. And the Pharisee, <clears throat> he was doing what Pharisees did, just building himself up and telling God about how great he was. The tax collector knew who he was, knew who God is. He, he, he recognized his position with God and held God in reverence and spoke to him in such a way. Whereas the Pharisee, he didn't, he didn't really know who he was and didn't have a good concept of who God is. And well said, and then he was a fool for that, right? He, he did not know who he was. I'll kind of put the rest up here as well. I want you to think about some of these also. We, we mention him often in the study of Ecclesiastes because thematically the books are very similar. Job, this concept is like the theme of the book of Job. Job had a massive taste of the tragic life. And while he did not curse God and die or ascribe evil to God, he does say, God, you, you should tell me why this is happening I deserve to have an arbiter explain why this has happened to me. I haven't sinned, and I don't understand, and I feel like I should understand. And then ultimately God will address him and not answer him. He will never tell him why, but he will remind him who God is himself, who Job is, and then kind of put it back on Job. Are you sure you want to have this conversation still? And Job repents of kind of demanding that audience saying, you need to tell me what's going on here. It's, it makes no sense. It's too hard. And I think you see that here as well. Solomon reminding us, even when it's confusing, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand why am I in this season? There's supposed to be a season to build. It seems like it's always the season to tear down with me. That doesn't make sense. It's not fair. He doesn't say, so go to God and get him to tell you. Make sure he knows you don't like what's going on. It's guard your steps when you go to him. Draw near to listen to him than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they're doing evil. Some of these others, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to speak. Um, when you make... Uh, Yes, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. And then that last one, do not let your mouth bring guilt to you. So any thoughts on any of those other three? So we kind of bring in this, this whole section here. And maybe 
How do these things, some of these tie really easily. We got Derek back here with a comment. Um, we see it clearly in the old law, especially like the vows. We're like, well, that makes sense. I understand they would do that, kind of part of a worship ceremonial vow. Think about, does that have applicability to us as well? Yeah, Derek. The fourth admonition about making a vow to God implies that <clears throat> when you make a promise to somebody, you have to keep it and not break it because God never breaks his promises. And <clears throat> when you borrow an amount of money from somebody, you have to pay that person back just like God always fulfills his promises. Very great point. I mean, we've just been talking about, wow, there seems to be a lot of oppression out there. Wow, there seems to be a lot of injustice out there. One might naturally assume, so if this is just the way it works, like I'm gonna say whatever I want, because that's how it works on, but that's how it works under the sun, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll make a vow to you, but, and yet here we have the preachers, no, 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 no. You, you do what you say. You don't let your mouth bring guilt to you. Despite how the world is working, you're still different. You are not affected by all these things we've been reading up to this point. Any other thoughts on these? Mitch wants back in. I like it. I'm just it. thinking, like, nowadays, I think this is very applicable in that, I mean, essentially, all these things could be summed up just saying, slow down. And think about what you're doing. And I think that applies a lot to our society today because everything comes at us and is done so quickly. You know, you get a text message and if you don't get a response or give a response in five minutes, somebody's messaging you back saying, hey, what's going on? Where are you? You know, did you die? What, what's happening? Um, you know, before cell phones, that wasn't a question. You know, you get a response when you got it. Um, so that, that seems to have sped up absolutely everything we do. I talk to you know, customers on a regular basis that sign up for things without reading what they're signing for or agree to terms and conditions that they you know, maybe disagree with now after the fact and want to change it and go back and just, you know, we can just change it now. Um, everything is just very, very quick. And Solomon here, the writer here, is telling us to you know, slow down there's uh, consequences to all these things. We have to consider that. Absolutely. Yeah, mate. I think just go along with what Mitch was saying about slowing down, but it's also, I think, within these three, think, you know, think, you know, the aspect of do not, do not be hasty to speak. You know, think about what you're going to say and, you know, make sure, and just like, you know, typical, you know, uh, us as men, a lot of times, and I know I'm myself guilty, I, I'm quick to just say the first things on my mind without thinking about it. And especially when, we, when we're approaching God, you know, it, it's wise to think of how, how we're approaching him, but also then what we're going to ask of him or what we're going to say to him in that aspect. And then when you make a vow to God, we have to understand is, is this a vow to God, it's not just a man. Yeah, the, granted, Scripture tells us, you know, same same aspects when we make a vow to somebody, we honor it. But this is on another level when we're making a vow to God, and and also do not not let your mouth bring guilt guilt to you. It's the whole aspect to think about what you're saying and 
how you're applying it and what your thought is behind it all. For sure. Derek's got another comment. Absolutely. Slowing down, thinking about it. Again, as we get comfortable, we get comfortable with God, and he kind of just becomes our friend in our minds, right? We, we can be flippant with him. Maybe we can be quick with him. But Solomon, very, very quick to remind us here, like, remember who this is. God is in heaven. You're on earth. He reminds us in verse 2, right? So guard your steps when you encounter him. This is not just talking to someone else here on earth. Yeah, Derek. <laughs> the final admonition, do not let your mouth bring guilt to you, implies that we should never say anything that we know that we will regret saying later because once we say something, we cannot truly take it back. And there is the principle about the fact that if you cannot say something nice about anybody or anything, then you should not say anything about that person or thing at all. That was a great comment. And you know, this, this, this passage would be right at home when we talk about the tongue and taming the tongue. And we, and we, if we have a lesson on that and how God, what God thinks about us when we lie or when we promise something, we don't fulfill it, or we use dishonorable language, whatever it might be with the mouth. You know, Solomon asked this question, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? It's kind of underscoring how serious this is at times to God, that we can anger him in a way with what we use our mouth for, that he destroys everything we're working on, that he becomes that angry. This is incredibly important. And so we have this bit of an aside, this pause in the action in Ecclesiastes that, okay, no matter how sad it seems like the earth is right now, no matter all the, the oppression, the injustice, you still remember how to interact with your God and what he expects of you. And then we kind of hit play again, and then we're right back into it in verse 8 here. And verse 8 reads like we have not skipped a beat kind of from the other chapters up to this point. We've kind of uh, answered a bit of those there. What practical takeaways do you find in verses 8 and 9? And I'll read them here as we're kind of back into the, the typical flow of the book. The preacher says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What's practical in there for you? One is just the fact that with life under the sun, there will be injustices. This is the world in which we live in, and we just need to be aware of that. Yep. So we're, we're, we're echoing a thought that's been introduced already, that there's going to be injustice on the earth. And kind of like get used to it. Like stop being surprised. Don't be amazed when you see it. And that's hard because when you see it, it, you know, you get frustrated, right? When you see it, especially if you experience it, even more so, right? Like this, this isn't right. And he says, don't be amazed. And then one of the reasons you shouldn't be amazed is because everyone's got a boss. 
How do you marry those two thoughts, basically? Like, that's the reason you shouldn't be amazed, because everybody's got a boss over them. In some ways, that sounds like I should be amazed, because there's a lot of people that should see what's going on here and should help me out. But he's saying, no, don't be amazed, because this guy answers to this guy, and he answers to this person, and they answer to these people. So how do you, how do we reckon what's going on there? Do you think? I think it's accountability. The fact that there is accountability. Solomon doesn't say at what point and exactly when that accountability is going to occur, but the fact that, okay, there, there is order you know, from God's viewpoint you know, as things happen you know, under the sun. And so, yes, there's injustices, but also injustice inevitably is going to be dealt with. Okay, yeah. So there is some ultimate accountability. It's a way you can take from that. Any other thoughts there? There, there are, in, in my studies, which are not exhaustive, there, there's kind of two ways I've seen people interpret this verse, and they are, they are pretty diametrically opposed. They, they don't really, one of them is kind of what David was telling us, that there is accountability, and at some point, someone's going to answer for things. So it's kind of looking up, like, this will eventually keep, keep being run up the flagpole, and there'll be some accountability. And the other way I've seen some, some interpreters kind of wrestle with this passage is, hey, the reason you shouldn't be amazed is because that person that is oppressing you is also being oppressed by someone. And he's being oppressed by someone, and he's being oppressed by someone because it is, it is trickling down almost because men do, do wicked things. And so when, when there is no value in people, when we stop having neighbors and we only have rivals, it's kind of like it gets pushed down on us lower to the bottom. And so don't be surprised that that could happen. And I don't know. I really don't know which way to take that. Verse 9 is puzzling as well because I will share with you um, Hebrew scholars don't exactly know how to translate this verse in a way that they all agree on. Um, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. It's not incredibly clear what is being said there, according to some Hebrew scholars. Some will, some have opined that because of that word but, we're kind of getting the, the answer to that, and someone's saying, well, you know, in an ideal kingdom, You'd have more of this cultivated field. So you have this field and it's benefiting everyone, the laborer and the king. That would be, that would be gain for the land in every way if that was how that was working. Maybe. I don't know. It's a challenging thing. Yeah, Tony. I might approach this from a little bit different uh, angle. A king who cultivates the land. So when, when the children of Israel requested a king, one of the cautions is that a king is oppressive. It's oppressive to the people. And so we see in other places the Bible calls uh, comparative to how one might uh, smelt a, you know, uh, some ore into a more pure substance. So a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. That's the way that this... New American Standard uh, is uh, interpreted. 
it may be from a negative perspective. You know, a king that oppresses the land, those people, those higher officials, if they push the people, eventually it's going to rise up, raise up. I mean, like we saw that in the time of the judges. It took oppression for God to be able to raise up judges. And then, you know, that they would benefit the people. So we may be, I would approach it from maybe a negative perspective, but... Uh, yeah, confusing. No, it definitely could be. I think that's very valid. Yeah, Dale. Yeah, so the, um, the New King James Version translates it, uh, moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field, which is a very different uh, understanding of that passage. I mean, as, as I read it with this translation, my mind goes to it's, it's an equalizer, right? Even though in verse 8, all these people might be, maybe they are oppressed by the people above them, and they're oppressed by the people above them, and so forth. In, in verse 9, it's almost the flip side, it's the answer to it. It equalizes and says, ultimately, everyone has to live off the land, right? Even the king can't eat if there's no crops. Everyone is ultimately answerable to the land, which is from God. At least that's how, it, from this translation, it's, it, yeah, it's a very different kind of thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I told you, we were right back in it. We're having to wrestle with what is Solomon saying exactly here? Like, how do I interpret this? What is he saying? And then what is he saying to me through the Spirit right now? How do I apply this? And, and you can go either way with it. Even with what Tony was saying, it made me think, I mean, you remember um, King Ahab famously when he really wanted Naboth's vineyard, right? And do you remember why he wanted it? It's like, because he wanted more wine. No, he tells him he wants it so he can tear it up and plant vegetables, is what the scripture tells us, which is like a clear negative thing about him. And Naboth said, this is my promised inheritance, this vineyard, like the highest thing we could be growing right now. And Ahab says, no, I don't care. I want to plant some vegetables, kind of a lowly food that you can plant many places. He just wants to cultivate fields. And so kind of taken in that way, you see a great example of that injustice, you know, coming from someone that should have known better. I'm going to push us forward a little bit as we're, we're running kind of in our last few minutes here. 10 through 17. We're going to talk about riches now. So we referenced this verse last week. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And as you keep reading, the preacher will just provide disappointments or harms from this love of money, this being insatiable when it comes to wealth and riches. What are some of those that stand out to you? What are some that you feel will try to pop up in our lives today? Most of it seems to hinge in some way on this kind of vexation and preoccupation with things. So. That's it. No. Okay. Hinging on the, the preoccupation with money or the things that, you know, with more, more money, more problems. Originally, here, Solomon teaching us that, that with more money come like hangers on or they come the things that you're using the money for and you got to devote attention to that because you kind of got your money working on this project, but you have to keep it spinning, right? The plate will fall off the stick if you don't kind of keep it spinning. And so... They do not provide the ease that maybe you uh, convinced yourself it might. Yeah, Nate. 
I sort of see it from the aspect, you know, everything under the sun aspect, you know, life on this earth. If, if we're not striving for heavenly things, if we're not striving for God, then nothing in this life is going to satisfy us, you know, under the sun. But the only thing, that, the only one that can truly satisfy us is God. Yep, so we're getting more examples about why money doesn't satisfy us. And maybe pointed examples, so that you have money, and that sounds good, but it won't satisfy you because people try to take it, or you have to keep using it, or you stay up all night worrying about it. How are you going to get more money? You got that money, but suddenly that's not enough, and there's still some over there you could maybe go get. Maybe you should go get that, and there's some more over here. And so, yeah, you're just stuck in this cycle that's unsatisfying, that is unfulfilling, and that does not answer that original question, what can man gain in this life under the sun? You can gain all this money, but it will not satisfy you. What did Jesus say? That you could gain the whole world. And do we sometimes hear Jesus teach that and be like, well, he's using a very big metaphorical picture here. He's just trying to, he's just trying to paint the picture that, you know, if you had everything, but you, but, you know, but you, but you lost your soul, you, you wouldn't be fulfilled. But is Jesus speaking literal that you could have everything, be king of the planet, you own everything, and you still would not be satisfied? Like, I believe Jesus is he's using that to help us with a big image, but I believe I take him at his word as well, that we gain everything under the sun, and we would still be unfulfilled. It's, it's always tempting that we still think, but there is a number out there that maybe no man has reached yet in the bank account, that if I reach that, I would experience a fulfillment that just hasn't been tapped into yet. Maybe it's out there. I know that most people don't get there, but, and Solomon, the spirit throughout all the scriptures are always shouting at us, it doesn't exist. You can have everything under the sun and you would not be fulfilled. Any other disappointments or harms of this obsession with wealth that you think are worth talking about before I kind of go to our final thought here? Yeah. Well, one other observation we might make is that if we love money, our heart's in the wrong place. <laughs> We're not loving the things that we ought to love. Money is not one of those things we ought to love. We need it, we use it, we get by with it, we use it to make our lives better, but it's not something we should focus on and hoard and think like that about it. Well, that's a great point. Why, why do we like money or why do we love money? It's not especially beautiful. I guess even gold coins, maybe they get dirty, right? Or they, you can't eat it. You can't, you can't like, it doesn't keep you warm. You can't make a blank. Like, why do we love it? Because our heart, because we love what we think it gives us that now I'm the captain of my own ship because I've got security, I've got money and I'll make decisions and I'll, I'll see to my own well-being and I don't need anybody. I'm independent because I have money, which are so antithetical to kind of what a child of God be, you know, saying like, no, Abba, Father, I need someone. I don't have, I get everything from you. I'm dependent on you. It is, it, that love of money really is a symptom of our heart and that we'll, we'll figure it out ourselves. We'll insulate ourselves from these bad first four chapters of Ecclesiastes. 
Oh, the world is hard? Well, I'll make it easy. I'll get enough money. I'll have enough comfort and security. And then I don't have to worry about those first four chapters. And that is vanity to pursue that. Uh, final thought here, verses 18 through 20. Let's read that together and then see if we have a, a closing thought here. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So interesting, as I hear young voices, maybe that's a closing thought for us. We're talking about the heart, that the preacher and the spirit offering us this thing to hope for, that in all these horrible things that might happen under the sun, promise that he will not remember those days because God has given us so much joy in our heart. Only if that's what gives us joy and not money and not pleasures and not work and enterprise and legacy. Thank you everybody so much for the class. Um, I think we'll pause for a moment and let everybody come in. Thank you.